I was asked to, to go up to Harvard and to uh, teach a class at the Kennedy School Institute of Politics. And I had a couple of copies of that TV guide, the actual with the contract with America in it. And I talked about the contract with America to my class and I, and I handed out this TV guide for them to look through. And it was like a dinosaur bone, you know? I mean, it was people were like, what is this? They were, I couldn't get their attention on anything else. They were, they were, and they were like, this would come to your house and you, would, and you would watch a TV show on a certain night at a certain time. <laughs> On any given day in Washington, D.C., policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. Each week, a guest and I will visit one of D.C.'s many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us for the next 20 minutes or so. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Welcome to this episode of 80 Proof Politics. I'm your host, Bill Shute. Today we're broadcasting from Landini Brothers at 115 King Street in Old Town, Alexandria. It is a fantastic Italian restaurant, family owned since the day it opened in 1979, and Ashley wants me to make sure you know that on October 28th, they'll be celebrating their 40th anniversary in which they are gonna recreate their original menu from 40 years ago. And if you've never been to Landini Brothers, it really is a wonderful experience. Not only is the food fantastic, the people are so friendly, the service is great. It is in a wonderful historic old building in Old Town that was constructed a year before the Declaration of Independence was signed. And I think it's safe to say that for those of us, particularly in eastern Fairfax County, it is the place you go for Italian food. And we're here today with our guest expert, Ed Gillespie, Managing Director and Chair, SVC Public Affairs. Ed, welcome to Aproof Politics and cheers. Thanks for having me. Good to be with you, Bill. As I've mentioned on previous episodes, we are wrapping up season one with Ed here today and concluding our three-part series looking at the importance of strategic political communications and how three individuals with very similar Capitol Hill experiences have translated that into very different professional paths. But Ed, let me just start by asking you, what is your definition of public affairs and, and how does SVC apply that for the benefit of their clients? Well, to me, public affairs is that intersection between politics and policy and business interest. Uh, there's a lot of folks who obviously do lobbying, which is, I would say, a subset of public affairs. The public affairs that we do at SVC, uh, which is Sard Verbinen and Company, and I do chair the public affairs practice there, is trying to help to shape the narrative, to have the right messaging, to help our clients make sure that they're getting that message to the right audiences. That includes, obviously, people in government, on Capitol Hill, and in the administration. We work with a lot of law firms and lobby shops. We provide collateral material for them, content for uh, you know, online content and digital, leave-behinds for Capitol Hill and, and uh, for other meetings. 
Um, infographics, you know, there's a lot of ways that you convey information today, and we help convey that information. I think you've seen increasing demand for it today uh, because Washington's in the middle of a lot of business. Oh, yeah. From our perspective, from SVC's perspective, uh, our firm, Sard Verbinen, is has been number one now for four years running in terms of uh, merger and acquisition deals, doing the announcements and the communications around those uh, big mergers and acquisitions, IPOs. But when you announce a merger and acquisition on Wall Street and, and kind of sell it to the investment community, it ends up having to come to Washington, D.C. for an approval somewhere, <laughs> Department of Justice yes, or indeed. the Federal Communications Commission or the FTC. And then we work with the law firms in uh, helping to make sure that the communications is right around the regulatory approval and review process. Now, are a lot of these companies that are going through M&A and Engage SVC, do they have internal government relations, lobbyists in the sense? They do, uh, generally. Um, a lot of them also have contract lobbyists on the outside. Uh, and, of course, they've got bankers who are, who are working on the uh, M&A deal, a big bank, and, and law firms. And we work with uh, all of them kind of across the board, our investor relations folks and our corporate comms support teams and our public affairs teams work together kind of aligned with the, uh, with the uh, business corporate structure. So then do they engage you to complete that picture and make sure that the overall messaging and perhaps the surround sound around the Washington portion of that activity is sound, solid, and engaging? Yeah, and, and you know, it's not just uh, at that point that it kind of is subject to regulatory review and approval for antitrust concerns and, and other uh, matters. We try to get there on the front end. There's a lot of language that uh, companies in those situations with a merger and acquisition like to use that may be music to the ears of Wall Street, but it's kind of nails on a chalkboard in Washington, D.C. <laughs> right. And so things like um, synergies and, and accretion, you know, that sounds great to, to the investor community. It, it sounds nerve-wracking and, and a little annoying to, to people who get elected to serve constituents where there's a fear that, that synergies and, and accretion and things like that translate into plant closures and layoffs. So making sure you get that balance right and, and accurate, but getting the language right is important. You alluded to this earlier. Many of our guest experts on 80 Proof Politics like to talk about the tools of advocacy that they use on behalf of their clients. Give us some examples of something you've recently used that has helped propel that message for a client. Well, we do a lot of traditional work and, and uh, in kind of traditional media as well as the digital media. And so I, I won't go into the, to the client or the matter, but uh, it's, it's a fight you know, on Capitol Hill over a policy. And, and you know, we were able to help get some op-eds out there that I think made the case strongly. And that then was, uh, you know, the lobbyists were able to use that to bolster their case on Capitol Hill to have some op-eds to take to, uh, to offices to show them, you know, it's a credible issue. Now, when you're, doing, when you're talking about op-eds, are you talking about the traditional sense of planning with the big three, the New York Times, Washington Post, or is there some more creative way to utilize an op-ed? Well, there's a lot out there now. There's a lot of uh, online uh, outlets, and, and, you know, if, if they're credible outlets and you get them published, you can, you can share links to them, obviously send them to, to folks on Capitol Hill, the lobbying teams do, and, and also print them off and leave them behind. And so it's a mix of, uh, of kind of credible um, online journals, but also the traditional uh, print media as well. And how has the online presence and social media in particular changed what you've done over your professional career? 
Well, it's it's significant, obviously, and digital, uh, you know, is is where a lot of people in the policymaking community get their information now on on Twitter and through other means. And so we, you know, we do a lot on digital. We do a lot in terms of, uh, like I say, infographics that convey information quickly and, and visually. We do a lot in terms of short videos that, that convey information as well. It's pretty much revolutionized the traditional media for, and, and the traditional tools, to your point, that those who are seeking to inform policymakers use. It's such a crowded field. Are there additional steps you take to make sure that that piece gets noticed? Yeah, you know, there's specialized media that uh, that experts use. There's uh, third-party groups and think tanks, and, and uh, we work with them as well and, and try to make sure that or try to encourage them to get engaged on issues. And, and then there's just the direct, you know, communication to the Hill, and, and we try to help, like I say, the, the government relations teams, whether they're in-house or contract lobbyists, uh, have compelling information and, and concise, you know, especially on, on the Hill now with young staff. If you can't convey it in a one-pager, it's unlikely to get uh, absorbed at all. Right. And that's not a new It's not that new. That's correct. Yeah. I agree with that. You know, you touched on something that a future guest bird is going to talk more about, but we haven't spent a lot of time on E-Proof talking about the role of think tanks. What Do you have a, a process that you go by to engage a think tank or make sure they're aware of the problem and hopefully they'll engage? We have to make sure it's in their wheelhouse and it's in their area of interest. Uh, it's consistent with their with their philosophical point of view. And uh, But to your point, it's a there's a lot of issues out there. It's kind of a crowded field and so it also has to be relevant and, and, and you need them to see the relevance of it. But, uh, you know, oftentimes we're in a situation where there's kind of a, a clear philosophical divide. Yeah. And, and you kind of know which side, you know, where, where you can go to find allies uh, on that side. And, and, and you try just like the lobbyists would do in, in approaching, you know, a member of Congress and their staff or a committee to, you know, be careful about going to somebody. You don't want to waste their time. And so it, it needs to be legit and it needs to be something that you think they would really be interested in. And most times, you know, when we've gone to, to them with an issue, they do find it, you know, worthy of, uh, of maybe doing an op-ed or a white paper or an analysis of policy statement. Yeah. You know, if I could pivot just uh, for a moment here, Ed, you've had such an extensive professional career here in Washington. And let me just run through a quick little list because we could eat up the rest of the episode <laughs> talking about your professional career. But you've been a congressional aide, both in a personal office and leadership office in the House. You've been a national party chair. You've been a state party chair. You're the founder of three highly successful public affairs firms. And you've been at the top of the pinnacle. You were a White House counselor to the president. Tell us, if you would, your first job on Capitol Hill. Well, I went to college in Washington, D.C. I went to the Catholic University of America, and I worked my way through school, and I had uh, three jobs uh, uh, every day. Um, my, my night job was I was a, a short order cook at a, the American Cafe, which is no longer there, but it was a restaurant on, sure on the Senate side. The quality of your cooking. <laughs> you know, no, it, was, it was a great place. It just, it was a long time ago. And uh, my, my afternoon job, I was in charge of beverages in the uh, dining hall. Uh, on campus. But my morning job was uh, from uh, 7 to 10 
at the Senate parking lot and uh, parking the cars for the staff that work uh, in the big office buildings there on, on the Senate side. They don't, the buildings are old, as you know, and they don't have underground parking. So they have, yeah. you know, like five football fields worth of parking outside. You know, <laughs> That's great. I mean, you literally started from the ground up. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> the asphalt up, at least, right? But so then you, was it when you graduated that you started working in a congressional office? Well, one of the uh, uh, parking lot attendants I was working with, had an internship in one of the house offices. Much more traditional start. Yeah, and said, uh, you know, it's a great office, good atmosphere. They had an opening and, uh, and said I should apply because I was looking to, for my, for my uh, senior year, my last semester, to have an internship. And uh, so I went and applied, and I, and I got the internship, and that in turn led to a, a job offer at the end of it, actually. And, and uh, I ended up moving to the, the congressman's name was Andy Ireland, which I always felt was uh, kind of kismet, given that I'm the son of an Irish immigrant. <laughs> and after uh, I was graduated, he didn't have an opening in, in the uh, D.C. office where I had been working, obviously. But then in August, he had an opening in the district office in Bradenton, Florida, and asked if I would move down and handle, you know, social security cases and veterans affairs things and, and correspondence. And when he would come home to the district, drive him around and yeah. take him to the Rotary Club. And uh, so I was a district aide in, in, the, uh, in the Bradenton office. And that was a lot of fun and it was a great experience. And, and then, and he was a Democrat as, as I was, and I was raised in a Democratic household. But in 1984, so that was in 83, in 1984, he changed parties and ran as a Republican uh, in Ronald Reagan's second uh, term in, in his reelect year. And he asked me to run three counties for his campaign, and that was my first campaign. Mm. And that's when I really got the campaign bug, and I realized I was, I was meant to do campaigns and communications. After that, he brought me back to Washington, D.C. I was a legislative correspondent answering the mail uh yeah. and uh but i wanted to do press and be a press secretary and uh, he didn't have an opening in his office for that so I, I ended up working for a newly elected member of congress who had gotten elected in 1984 by the name of dick army of texas and uh, i went to work for him in his first month in office and on february 1 of uh of 1985. let me go back to the ireland experience when he switched parties was that a big concern of yours not from really, an, from because, an ideological. Uh, you know, there was a kind of a, a realignment going on around uh, Ronald Reagan at that time, and to a certain extent, he and I typified what was going on. He was a Southern Democrat. He was from, uh, while well, I was, Bradenton's on the coast, but uh, he was from Central Florida and, uh, and had a somewhat rural district, and uh, Polk County was the center of it, a lot of citrus. He was a kind of typical bull weevil, then called a bull weevil uh, Democrat, uh, who supported Ronald Reagan in the U.S. House in terms of his legislative agenda, and he just wasn't comfortable running with Walter Mondale at the top of the Democratic ticket. I'm uh, ethnic Catholic from the Northeast, and there were a lot of uh, Irish and Italian and Polish Catholics in the Northeast and the Great Lakes states uh, who also kind of related to uh, Ronald Reagan more maybe a little more culturally conservative, and, uh, and, and they were changing parties as well, uh, or at least voting for, for President Reagan. And I felt that President Reagan resonated with me, and so I was very comfortable with his decision 
and, uh, and, was, and was happy to, to become a Republican myself. You know, with this great background of yours, you encapsulate so many aspects of our previous guestworks. <laughs> but you are the only one who has run for higher statewide offices. Mm, yeah. Did you learn anything about advocacy during those campaigns that you didn't already know or appreciate? You know, it's interesting. So I've, I've lobbied, and, uh, but I've also been counselor to the president, and I was a top staffer on Capitol Hill, as you said, and I ran for, for Senate and governor here in our Commonwealth of Virginia. So I've lobbied and I've been lobbied. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, you can kind of see what works and what doesn't from both sides of, of that fence. Uh, I would say that in my, you know, run for, for governor in particular, the state lobbyists, uh, you know, were, were a very valuable source of information around issues. And, uh, you know, I got information from a lot of places, but lobbyists were among them. And, and generally the information that they gave me was, was good. I didn't always end up agreeing with them uh, or, or adopting the policies that they were advocating. Um, but it, it was helpful to, to hear them out. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. Let's talk a bit about your role as counselor to the president. You, know, you had served in Capitol Hill when uh, you've had a president from each party. And then, uh, what was it, 2005, 2007, when uh, President Bush brought you in? What year was that? That was 2007, yeah. ju in June of 2007. Yeah. I had worked on his... I've been chairman of the Republican National Committee uh -huh. during his re-election campaign and worked very closely with Ken Melman, who was the campaign manager, and Carl Rove, the strategist, uh, and also the senatorial committee and the congressional committees because we were focused, the RNC focused on uh, electing people down ballot, not just the president and vice president. Um, but it was, uh, uh, I, I, when I left the RNC, I didn't go into the administration, uh, went back to my firm, Quinn Gillespie and Associates. Um, and, but then in June of, uh, of 2007, my friend Dan Bartlett, who had been, was counselor to the president, had been very close to President Bush from the time he was governor of Texas, uh, decided that he was gonna head back to Texas himself and head home. And, uh, and, and so I was asked to, to come in and serve as counselor to the president, which sometimes gets confused with the job of White House counsel, which is the president's yeah. lawyer. Please do explain what the counselor to the president it's, does. It's not. Uh, uh, the, the White House counsel is the, the, the lawyer in the, in the White House. And the counselor, I always say, is maybe more accurately pronounced consigliere. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's a, an advisor. Um, it's, the, it's the job David Axelrod had for President Obama. Uh, like I say, Dan Bartlett and Karen Hughes before me for uh, for President uh, uh, Bush, and it was a it was an incredible opportunity. It wasn't a, a 
wasn't a job I was looking for, uh, but when when asked to serve, um, you know, I, I think you serve your country, and and uh, I was honored to be asked, and it was an honor to serve President Bush, and it was an incredible experience. What was a typical day like? <laughs> or was there a typical day? <laughs> there is no typical day. I mean, it, it starts early, and uh, so the president, uh, Bush 43, would get into the Oval Office between 6.30 and 6.45 in the morning. He's an early riser. He'd already have worked out. Um, generally, Steve Hadley, who was the national security advisor, would, would wander into the Oval at around 6.45 uh, and, and spend some time with the president. Josh Bolton, who was the chief of staff, would come in a little after that, uh, around 7, and, uh, and I would come in a little after that, around 7.15. And, and the three of us would kind of end with a little quiet time with the, you know, conversation with the president to kind of start off the day. And then the three of us would leave and go to the staff, senior staff meeting, which started at 7.30 a.m. And from there, that would usually run between a half an hour to an hour, depending on what was going on. And then you, you kind of fan out across the White House from there to your various, and, and I had the communications departments and apparatus kind of under my purview as counselor to the president. So the speechwriters, the, the communications office, the office of the press secretary, a lot of the events uh, that the president would do, where I was shared purview uh, uh, over those. And, and then we'd you know, start doing our tasks. And, and I would generally leave around 7.30 or 8.30. <laughs> Not and, uh, and And uh, you know, get home at around 8.30 or you know, 9. So Time to hit the pillow and yeah, turn around much, it all over. Pretty much. Yeah, it's, and that's uh, seven days a week mostly, isn't it? Yeah, you, weekends were off. Uh, you didn't have to come into the office mm -hmm. on weekends, although you, you often did, and, and often traveled on weekends, okay. especially for foreign travel. Um, but you were always on, and you were always working, and they install a special phone in your house and everything. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so it's you're never off. There's no doubt about that. Was there anything about the job that surprised you that you didn't anticipate? Um, I would just say, you know, the you really the, 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 we were there. It was a very difficult, challenging time. The 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 surge in Iraq was just starting. Prior to the surge, things were very bad in Iraq. The immigration bill that had been a president's top priority collapsed on the floor of the Senate the first week I was there. And then we had the financial market crash yes. collapse. And that was just a, a, you know, a really awful time. You know, you just forge such special bonds with people. And so I guess I was surprised by just, uh, you know, how, how, how close you get with the people that you work with in situations like that and how long those bonds remain. I still today come across people who were in the White House when I was there at the National Economic Commission or the National Security Council or CEA or uh, Domestic Policy Council, and, and it's like you saw them yesterday, you know, it's like family in, in a lot of ways. Let me rewind the clock a bit, if you would, and let's go back to your time with Dick Armey. Yeah. So he was elected in 84. Yep. He had served um, about... Well, five terms, 10 years. By the time you were involved with him and Newt Gingrich in the creation of the contract with America. And we just celebrated the 25th anniversary yeah. of this last week. So I thought it was a great opportunity to ask you uh, about the contract with America. But first, if you would just explain what it was. The contract with America was the, the policy agenda that 
House Republican candidates and, and incumbents ran on in 1994, which was President Clinton's first midterm. And Newt Gingrich was uh, the Republican whip at the time. Bob Michael uh, was the uh, House Republican leader and had been for, for a long time. And, and he was of a different generation, World War II generation. And, and by the way, uh, may he rest in peace, just a, a, a great American. And we're at Landini Brothers, and, and you could pretty much find Bob Michael in retirement here. Pretty much every Friday night, Bob Michael was here for dinner at Landini Brothers, and, and people would come by and say hi to him, and, and it was great. But he was the Republican leader, Newt Gingrich was the Republican whip, and Dick Armey was the conference chairman, the House Republican conference chairman, whom, for whom I worked, and I was policy and communications director for the House Republican conference. It's probably worth noting that, you know, Army got elected to that position and he beat the incumbent right. um, in his uh, only his uh, fourth term. And if I remember right, that was uh, Jerry Lewis. Jerry Lewis from California. And it was the first time a sitting member of the House Republican leadership had been defeated in like 30 years. It was rare. And uh, it kind of reflected a generational change that was going on in the conference at the time and a mentality that we can't just be a permanent minority, and, and Republicans had been in the minority for 40 years uh, in the 1994, going into the 1994 election. Right. And Gingrich and Army were both former college professors. They were both driven by ideas, and they had kind of complementary personalities and, and skills, and their staffs meshed together very well. And, and they and, and some others, including Bill Paxson, who was the Congressional Committee Chairman at the time, and John Kasich, who was the Budget Committee Chair, Tom DeLay, others had all kind of uh, gravitated around the idea, we, we have to have a positive agenda. We can't just run against Bill Clinton. And that this was Clinton's first midterm. His first midterm, he'd, he'd been elected in 92, defeated, defeated President Bush 41 uh, in his reelection, and had come in and, and went with a pretty big agenda. In particular, if you remember, uh, he, he had a pretty significant tax increase after running on middle-class tax cuts, and then he also made a run at a health care reform system that, uh, you know, that, that was rejected by the public and scared folks. And he also, you know, had, had made some initiatives relative to the Second Amendment and uh, infringing on that. And so there was a backlash out there, but it wasn't enough, we didn't feel like, to actually gain control. And, and we needed to gain, I think it was around 42 seats. I, I can't remember the exact number. I'm, I'm pretty sure we won 53. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a wave election. But the contract with America were 10 bills that we said, if you tr entrust us with the majority for the first time in 40 years, in the first 100 days of the new Congress, we will pass these bills off the floor of the House. Didn't promise to enact them because we know there's a second, there's another chamber, the, the, uh, the Senate. Right. And it to enact it has to be signed by a president. We suspected he wouldn't sign a lot of these things, but we said we would move these bills. And, you know, they were very popular bills. And, and uh, we had all of the candidates who ran for the House, and just about all of them did, signed a contract. And the contract said, you know, if we don't do this, throw us out. And about three weeks before the election, uh, we ran a full-page ad-in uh, TV guide. And it was a tear-out, cardstock tear-out, of the contract with America so that voters could kind of keep track of what we were doing and were we meeting our promises. That is a very old-school approach when you look back <laughs> it at is, it. You know, <laughs> I can't uh, imagine I mean, anyone buying a TV guide, although I see them at the grocery store <laughs> yeah, regularly, much <laughs> less using that as a campaign 
promise. Well, it, it was, uh, you know, obviously a very uh, kind of a middle class uh, way to reach middle class wow. voters, to empower voters. It's funny, I, after I, you mentioned my races, after I lost the, the race for governor of Virginia in, in uh, November of 2017, because we have off-off year elections in Virginia, I was asked to, to go up to Harvard and to uh, teach a class at the Kennedy School Institute of Politics. And I had a couple of copies of that TV guide, the actual, with the contract with America in it. And I talked about the contract with America to my class, and I, and I handed out this TV guide for them to look through. And it was like a dinosaur bone, you know? I mean, it was just, it was like, what is this? They were, I couldn't get their attention on anything else. They were, they were, and they were like, this would come to your house, and you would... And you would watch a TV show on a certain night at a certain time. Exactly. And, on each of the three channels? Yeah, on the three stations that are available to you. It was, uh, I'll never forget that. I was struck by it. Oh, my gosh. Just, just to physically hold the book yeah. probably was the starting yeah. point. Yeah. yeah. So how was it? So you, you had this massive wave election. Republicans take the majority for the first time in 40 years, as you say. And the focus was on the first 100 yeah. days. Now, I remember what it was like on the other side of the fence, working within those 100 days. You were at the heart of it, because now you're with the majority leader. Yeah. yeah. Army became the majority leader. Gingrich became the speaker. Bob Michael had decided to retire and to leave Congress. Okay, so how was it implementing those 10 promises? It was grueling and uh, really stressed, you know, put the – put the system to the test <laughs> and uh, the committee process, the yeah, house floor. The committee, bills through committees in 100 days. In 100 phenomenal. days, yeah. And, and some of them had split jurisdiction. You'd have some that were partly in ways and means and partly in energy and commerce. You had to reconcile them. And, and it was, it was uh, a lot. The staff, you know, we were a little sleep deprived. <laughs> uh, the members in the leadership. But everybody was pulling together. It was a team. You know, one of the things about it is, you know, it was not just a campaign document. It was a governing document. And everybody had said we were going to do these things. And so we were being held accountable, and we had to do them. And that helped a lot. But just in terms of the sheer weight of the process and moving these bills through subcommittee and full committee markups and then to the floor, we allowed amendments for the most part. You know, they weren't completely open rules, but there were amendments allowed, so, you, so you'd have long days on the floor. But we got them all done with a little time to spare. In fact, I think we, I think we completed the last contract item uh, on the 93rd day. I remember you know, that well. With a week to spare. Yeah, I absolutely remember that well. It, it, it was, I've always thought of that moment as a real tipping point. Not only the first time Republicans take care of the majority in 40 years, but his I view it as starting the cycle of trading off the majority yeah. every so many years. That yeah. was not going to be the case throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s. But now we're in a period now where voters recognize they can have a voice in making a change by changing the majority. Is that a fair assessment? It's a very fair assessment. And uh, I, I knew when we won the House that we weren't on the cusp of our 40-year run, <laughs> you know, yeah. that, that we were likely to see that dynamic and voters don't have the same party allegiance that they that they once did. They're Good more point. likely to, to self-identify as independent. In fact, I, I think a plurality generally do. And so they're more likely to swing uh, faster. Uh, they don't they don't uh, you know lock in on a party and vote Democrat or vote Republican for the rest of their lives. Some do, but fewer than than in the in to your point in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And so it, it did 
create this kind of back and forth. I think that's healthy for, for the process, mm-hmm. and you shouldn't have, a, you know, one party rule is not good, regardless of the party. Do you think that's a reflection of voter desire? They, I do think they want a, that divided. Government. I think they generally think that it's the, the, the founders created a system of checks and balances, and the checks and balances are probably more rigid, rigidly enforced when one party has control of one branch of government, the other party has control of the other, and they keep each other honest. Well, yeah, that was a phenomenal, had to be a phenomenal experience and such a bellwether moment. I know there's been things like that at each step of your career, and there's obviously been challenges and obstacles. So what career doesn't have those, right? Certainly you've had a number of young professionals and people wanting to get started in Washington come to talk to you about how you got started, how you made a move from this to that, what motivated you to take this role in the government or outside the government. Looking back on on that lengthy and very extensive professional career here in town, is there anything you wish you had done differently or or maybe sooner? You know, I've been very blessed and very fortunate, as as my late father would say, no sense being Irish if you can't be lucky. And uh, I've certainly had my fair share of luck. I never had a five-year plan, I, I, and and things just kind of they just kind of fell in place to a certain extent. It, starting with the fact that you know I was parking cars on the Senate parking lot, and one of the guys I was parking cars with had this you know knew of this job opening in 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 uh, the house office building. The value of being there. Yeah, right? right place, right time, and I didn't have any. Neither of my parents went to college, two of the smartest people I've ever known, uh, but they didn't have the benefit of a college education. They insisted that, that my brothers and sisters and I do. But it, my point is we weren't politically connected. You know, it's not like I grew up in a house where we had fundraisers for our member of Congress or local congressman. or any. My mother ran for school board. She was the first woman ever elected to school board in no, her hometown. I didn't know that yeah. about her. So she was a, uh, a trailblazer in, in her own right. Uh, but, you know, we didn't know anybody. And, and that's one of the great things about politics is you don't have to know anybody. Now, the people do, obviously, yeah. just like in any business. And yeah. there are people in campaigns who are there because their father's a big donor, or their mother is you know, a, an influential uh, committee person. But I just you know, ended up there because I was, I was parking cars and, and got uh, an opportunity to intern. And I did well in the internship, and, and that led to a job. Yeah, I went to college. I was going to be a reporter. And I wanted to be a journalist, you know, and, and uh, but that that wasn't meant to be. I was meant to be in politics, I think, and, and ended up in the right place. And and then ending up for Dick Army, when I went to work for Dick Army, you know, he was kind of considered to be a fluke, uh-huh. his win. Uh, you know, 1984 was a landslide election, and he was one of the, you know, one of the six Republicans elected in the state of Texas. They called him the Texas Six Pack who got elected, but he was kind of considered uh, a little quirky, he was a college professor, he had all these idioms. And, and I remember he used to say, uh, uh, well, he loved wearing cowboy boots. Wore yeah. cowboy boots all the time. I mean, he was an economics professor, yeah. right? And I remember he used to love to say that he considered himself a pointy-toed intellectual. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and, and, you know, people didn't think he, they weren't even sure he'd get reelected. And I went down and I ran his first, the first campaign I ran was for his reelection, and, and I lived in Louisville, Texas. And that was a great experience. And, but he went on to become the first Republican majority leader in the U.S. House of Representatives in 40 years. 
10 years after I went to work for him. And that wasn't some grand plan. Right. Uh, well, it was a grand plan to win the house, but I mean, it just, it just kind of one thing led to another. And, and in the course of doing the contract with America, Haley Barber, who was a very vigorous chairman of the Republican National Committee, and, and kind of came up on, on the staff side himself as political director for President Reagan's, you know, in President Reagan's White House. And so he, he actually was in meetings with staff, uh, which is kind of rare for a principal like that. But I, I was a top leadership staff, so I'd be in meetings with him. And his communications director at the RNC left, Chuck Greener, who's a, who's a dear friend of mine still to this day. And he asked me to, to take that job, to be the communications director at the Republican National Committee. And that was because I was in meetings with him, and I, I, you know, he thought I made sense, <laughs> I guess. And, uh, and so I went to work for him in 1996, a presidential election year. President uh, Clinton was running for re-election. Senator Dole was the Republican nominee. And I got my first kind of taste of presidential politics and national politics. The contract with America was national, but being at the center of the RNC for a presidential campaign was really exciting, and the convention and everything. Mm -hmm. And then that's how I ended up getting into government relations and lobbying because after Haley left the chairmanship of the RNC, very successful chairmanship, he asked me to come and work with him at Barbara Griffin Rogers, the, the, his lobbying firm. And we started a public affairs firm called Policy Impact Communications that I was the, the uh, CEO of. And that's how I ended up in the private sector doing public affairs, government relations, lobbying. And, and, but I stayed involved in politics and, and but I, kind of wasn't planning to do anything, but then I ended up, you know, being involved. John Kasich was a friend of mine, is a friend of mine. He decided to run for president and, and asked me to help on his communications for his exploratory committee. And, and so that was kind of fun. And, and he washed out and endorsed Governor George W. Bush. And, and my wife, Kathy, had worked for another Texas congressman, Joe Barton, and, and the campaign consultant for his House race in 1984 was uh, a consultant down in Texas by the name of Carl Rove. And when Kasich got out, Kathy called Carl and said, you should get Ed involved in the Bush campaign. And Carl reached out and said, you'd be interested. That's how I ended up there. So my, my point is this, you know, I think just ha having a job that you enjoy and, and you like and doing that well, uh, you don't always have to be thinking about what's next. That's not to say you shouldn't. And, and there have been times when I've, you know, had to think about that. And, and it, you know, just ended up working out for me. Yeah, before we wrap up, you remind me of one ticket in your resume that I think would be of interest to our listeners, but we didn't mention. You also managed a presidential convention, right? I did for, for President Bush in, uh, in, his, uh, in 2000 in Philadelphia. Uh, I was the program chairman, okay. uh, but the program chairman is, you know, everything you see from, from the Pledge of Allegiance until the benediction and everything in between that you see on stage is the program. And it's all geared towards a message. It's all right. it's orca highly orchestrated. Very much so. On point. Everything has to be cleared, approved. Yeah. So you're right there in the center of these yeah. decisions. And we got started late. You know, I mean, I, I went, the, the convention was the last uh uh, week of August, and, and I first went to Philadelphia where it was being held uh, on June 9, and, and we had, and there was like nothing. You know, there was not, we had, we had these charts and time slots, and they were all empty. And there were some ideas floating around, but we had to fill them. 
and I wanted them to be short speeches. I didn't want you know everybody going up there and speaking for 20 minutes, but people to go up and speak for like three, four, five minutes, you know, and and move. That's a challenge in its own. It is. It is. And 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 elected officials in particular don't like to do that. <laughs> but, but we wanted to keep it moving, and 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 you know try to keep TV on it for as long as we could in in a time when it was hard to keep television on the conventions. Um, so that was, uh, that was a great experience. And that, that is really when I got deeply involved in President Bush's, then Governor Bush's campaign was they were happy with the convention. They felt the program went well. And then they asked if I would, after that, uh, I moved to Austin. And I, and I uh, when Karen Hughes, who was the comms director for the campaign, went out on the plane with the governor uh, for kind of the, the post-convention you know, push, I kind of ended up in Austin essentially functioning as, a com as the comms director in the campaign headquarters. Well, Ed, I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to join us here in 80 Proof Politics. It's been a great story. You're full of great stories. And if we had three more hours, we would have heard <laughs> half of them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Not that that's ever happened before. Just remember, no matter what you think about politics in Washington these days, whether you think the glass is half full or half empty, there's still room to fill your drink. <laughs> Cheers, Ed. Cheers, Bill. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.